Hello, and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. How are you doing? So it's been um, a decently long while since I posted anything, um, and not much has changed. I, uh, I really have been incredibly distracted, so uh, my apologies. Um, I did, the last thing I posted was a review of Scream Queen, uh, the documentary about Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, um, and that was uh, really delightful to post because a lot of people seem to have actually downloaded that one and also i i saw the the review retweeted by the filmmakers and the official account and mark Patton responded to it and that was all really cool so um i had a really great time uh seeing that people uh, actually liked that one or at least seemed to have engaged with it in some way um and then uh, you know in true fashion i have uh, squashed all momentum by not posting anything in several months so i am going to do a quick review today of a film that i just recently saw that came out of the blue across my uh my desk is that a thing do i have a desk came to my attention <laughs> um and that i think is great and I, I hadn't heard anything about it so i wanted to talk about it because i thought maybe someone would hear this and check it out so um i have no i had no prior knowledge of this it was a very sudden thing that came to my attention but uh there is uh available starting july 17th through film movement film movement in case that wasn't clear the first time uh, which you can find on twitter and if you google film movement you'll find their web page uh, if you follow their their social media or their website to their virtual cinema um, they have available uh, right now uh, a film called carmilla or sorry not right now well i don't know when this is going to go up but they have available as of july 17th whenever that is uh, a film called carmilla and I had zero idea what Carmilla was. And may I tell you, <laughs> I have said before that my favorite horror movie is Jack Clayton's The Innocence. Uh, I love gothic, macabre uh, things. I love very sort of subtle, atmospheric, preferably, preferably ghost stories. This is not a ghost story. Um, but it, I would say immediately, visually, it seems to give homage to the innocence. So I want to touch on that. I want to talk about, um, it also is a super queer film, which is lovely. So, um, I will, uh, in the context of the review, I'm going to do a non-spoiler review where I just try and explain a little bit about what it is and if you think you might want to watch it. Uh, and then I will ring a physical bell and then I will do a spoiler review. And the bell sounds like that. Um, and I know I, I could just tell you uh, that I'm going to switch from non-spoilers to spoilers, but the bell makes it festive. So, um... Carmilla. Okay, so here's um, here's so if you're you've not been if you've not been with us previously, the non-spoiler review is going to be kind of like everything I would tell to someone who hasn't seen the movie, who I'm trying to kind of inform about, you know, what the movie is and why they might want to go see it. And then the spoiler review is basically everything I would say to someone who has seen the movie, uh, you know shortly after seeing the movie, like everything I want to say after seeing the movie, everything I want to talk to someone about after seeing the movie. So presumably you'd want to 
maybe listen to the first half and then pause <laughs> and then go watch the movie and then come back for the second half or just listen to the whole thing and you know have the, the surprises ruined for you it's up to you um but in the non-spoiler section so i want to point out um I, this is based on a very early novel from the late 19th century uh which i have had honestly not heard of before so uh, Carmilla is the title of the novel, and it was published prior to Bram Stoker's Dracula. So it's actually a very, very, very early vampire novel, which is really exciting. And it is considered, um, I believe, I haven't read the novel, and I'm not a great historian of literature, but from what I've uh, encountered through quick Google searches, it appears to be one of the... <laughs> one of the very earliest sort of novels that deal with explicitly lesbian themes. Uh, so this is this is a lesbian vampire movie. Um, are you in? Uh, this is a this is a period gothic 19th century lesbian vampire movie. okay so uh, actually should I just stop there? No. Um, okay, so this is, uh, a very beautiful, very subtle, very atmospheric, uh, very classy gothic in the vein of something like Jack Clayton's The Innocence or maybe like Robert Weiss's The Haunting um, uh, movie. So I would say first and foremost, if you'd like a lesbian vampire movie, go watch, rent, whatever. Um, if you're attracted to, uh, you know, sort of gothic romance or, you know, horror gothic romance, uh, I think this is an excellent film for you. Uh, and I also think, too, the other kind of note I would say that I want to point out, um, so yes, if you like very cla like classic, classy, kind of like, um, you know, uh, period horror, you probably would be into this because it has that sort of like gothic horror element. But I also think that this is, as well as that, this is a modern take on this story. I don't know how different it is from the novel. I have not read the novel. So it could be like a, a tragic disaster in the sense that it totally ruins the novel. I have no idea. But as a film, it's wonderful, um, in my opinion. Uh, but the other sort of like reference I'd like to give is very much something in the spirit of like the witch, Robert Eggers' The Witch, uh, in the sense that this is a period story that has a lot of period elements, but very, uh, very intentionally rewrites and reverses some of the kind of like historical elements that might have perhaps been interpreted in different ways several centuries ago. Um, and so I can't really tell you what those things are yet, but I will talk about that in the spoiler section. Uh, but yeah, I would say like, if you like sort of classic, classy, gothic stuff, or if you like this kinds of like modern takes, um, particularly modern feminist takes on uh, horror, traditional horror narratives, uh, like something like maybe The Witch, uh, I think this would work for you. Um, the movie is loosely about a young girl named Lara, who's 15, who lives in this very large, gorgeous estate uh, with a governess and with her father. The governess is named Miss Fontaine, and uh, Miss Fontaine believes that uh, because Lara is left-handed, she calls the devil to her, so she ties Lara's hand behind her back so she can learn not to use her left hand and um, 
and sends her wandering through the forest to pick flowers with her hand literally tied behind her back. Uh, and so it's this kind of grim story of in this rather abusive religious household of this young girl who just desperately wants company and desperately wants to read. And <laughs> controversial um she desperately wants to read and learn and uh and you know she's at a sort of age of uh i think she's 15 she's just at this age of like self-discovery and sexual awakening and and everything around her is just stymieing her uh and a carriage crashes in on a dark and stormy night outside of the estate of this family and they bring in this mysterious woman who doesn't seem to have any memory and no one knows who she is and this mysterious woman they come to call carmilla and uh you know uh and uh, lo and behold um erotic vampire nonsense ensues um, what I would say, and what I can say without spoiling the movie, is I would just want to preface this by saying one of the things that comes up a lot in the, I sort of peruse the like user reviews that are available on different platforms, and a couple of people have a sort of like scathing sense of um, whether or not this is horror, and whether they kind of want to argue about if it is or isn't horror. Um, and. What I would say is, I mean, certainly, like, enter into the experience with the primer that this is not a conventionally structured horror narrative. I talk a lot about how um, kind of what I understand to be the most conventional, conventionally structured horror narrative is, or what I would characterize as a conventional horror narrative, is one that has a sort of cyclical pattern of scares, where every 10 to 15 minutes something scary happens or something intentionally and obviously seeks to scare you and the things that deviate from that um to me are sort of more in the category of being like uh, unconventional or differently structured horror and so this is even quite not not altogether in the unconventional category because it really bridges uh, a, a kind of um gothic literature tradition with a kind of kind of modern horror cinema unconventional horror cinema aesthetic and style and structure so uh what i would say is um uh, are are there ways in which this challenges some of the expectations of a horror movie yes um do i think that this is not a horror movie because it does these things no um and you know some of the comments were like uh uh um that it's a it's like in sarcastic quotes like one of those I'm not a horror movie, horror movies. <laughs> uh, and I think that's obnoxious. Uh, but I, I would say that it's, you know, here's what, what I want to contribute in terms of information that I think might be helpful, which is, um, you know, given the literary tradition that this calls back to, it's interesting. Um, if you actually research the origins of horror in U.S. Hollywood cinema, um, what you'll find is this really interesting account of the fact that obviously there are traditions that precede, you know, that precede Hollywood filmmaking, which we would now call horror. But horror as a film genre wasn't it wasn't actually a term that was used quite prevalently uh, prior to like the 1930s. Like the the marketing, you know, genres are arguably kind of most applicable in the area of marketing. Right, like how you get to have genres is 
a studio system like the Hollywood, Hollywood studio system basically says like, well, people like this kind of movie. So we're going to like, we're going to brand it and tell them that this is what it is, right? This is a Western, this is a comedy, this is, a, you know, a crime fiction story, right? And you kind of like, you sort of give them uh, a kind of branded package and you tell them that, you know, this is the particular experience that you're buying a ticket to. Horror, interestingly, at its inception in terms of Hollywood filmmaking was not, you know, not universally uh, understood as such using that language. Meaning that actually early, very early American horror films were marketed as other genres. So um, there's sort of two uh, references here that I think are really fun and interesting to look at. Uh, one is Rona Berenstein's Attack of the Leading Ladies, which is a book about gender and sexuality in the horror film, particularly looking at US horror films. Um, and, and that book has this account early on where she looks at the ways that Dracula was marketed. Dracula was, you know, you know, a very, very early Hollywood example of what we would now call a horror movie. Uh, but what's interesting is that the term horror wasn't wasn't really used to market the movie Dracula, and and be, in part because that particular branding of a Hollywood genre hadn't happened yet, uh, it was in the process of happening. And what her kind of archival exploration of advertise print ads and newspaper coverage at the time would basically reveal that their the language that was being used was actually romance that the 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 way that dracula was marketed was as romance it was that like that was the genre within the hollywood studio system that was used to sell the movie dracula of course it had the connotation of being a you know a macabre or a you know a bleak or grim romance and certainly there were gothic literary traditions that people were aware of that they kind of you know used to influence some of the impressions that they got about what the kind of experience they were going to get from the movie uh you know including the sort of cultural awareness of the dracula novel but it wasn't really called a horror film it was called it was really marketed as a romance film and then the other reference i think is really interesting here is uh, if you look at, there's a really great book um, by Angela Smith, I think I've mentioned it before, called Hideous Progeny, which is uh, basically makes the argument that horror as a genre has a kind of eugenic logic. Uh, and that, you know, that ultimately the idea of difference in the horror movie is structured around a eugenic idea of, you know, physical characteristics or physical difference or disability being a kind of foundational otherness upon which you can project the sense of otherness that we sometimes ascribe to gender or sexuality or race or uh, other categories of, of difference. Um, and that book... Uh, she actually has this great part of the book where she pulls up um, uh, internal memos between different different people involved in the Hollywood Production Code office. So the very Cliff's Notes version is that the Hollywood Production Code basically was a pre-production censorship, self uh, self uh, you know uh, self chosen and self implemented. Uh, censorship practice you know, uh, undertaken by the Hollywood studio system, uh, which really came to strong prominence in like the mid 1930s. Uh, but th th there's actually memos from within the production code office uh, wherein uh, the 
the actual language that they use is they refer to movies like Dracula and Freaks, and they they basically point out that there's this rise in prominence in these grotesque movies, and the language that they use at one point is, and I'm going to paraphrase because I haven't read the book in like quite a bit of time, but there's literally a, a quoted memo that says like, should we kill them off? Meaning, should we as the production code office basically prohibit the making of this kind of grotesque film? Um, and what they're basically, like her argument, which is so great, but her argument there has to do with the fact that there was actually a kind of eugenic logic around the idea of whether or not horror films themselves should be allowed to live. That, that the sort of very, like the burgeoning sort of, you know, sort of uh, genre of horror in U.S. cinema um, almost kind of got cut off at the past, so to speak, and totally totally kind of denied being put into production ever again. Because realistically, that office could have done a tremendous amount of damage in terms of preventing horror of any kind going forward and developing in the, you know, in the late 30s and 40s. So, um, I mean, certainly there were restrictions that were strongly implemented and probably there were catastrophic losses in that sense in terms of the content of films or films that didn't get made. Um, but the idea being that there was a, an awareness, there was, both of those books have this great historical artifact, um, archival element where they point to an awareness, um, and the Andrew Smith book particularly points to the, the awareness within the Hollywood studio system that there was this new movement of films, uh, which we ultimately would, would, would come to the, the understanding of, uh, we would come to characterize and understand as horror movies. Um, but the reason why I bring that up is I feel like some of the judgment of a film like Carmilla as being, uh, you know, kind of sarcastic quotes, like not a horror movie, horror movie, or, or something that takes itself too seriously because it's not uh, trying to like particularly achieve a certain pattern of cyclical scares. I feel like that is an, an opinion kind of informed by an expectation that comes much later. And I think it's interesting and also it's like historically appropriate that this story that precedes Dracula kind of comes to the screen. And by the way, I know that this is not, I haven't seen them, but I know that there are many other film versions. So, so you know, uh, I'm, I don't really have a way of characterizing or, or kind of contextualizing this in relationship to the other films. But what I would say about this one in of itself is like the fact that this is a film that is based on literature that's kind of appeared to Dracula and that it uh presents itself in terms of you know bridging some of the the divides between romance and gothic and horror which we now would call horror um the fact that it kind of presents itself in that sort of ambient or ambiguous territory of being kind of romance uh, and kind of like a macabre or bleak romance in the way that Dracula was in 1930 i think that's really kind of appropriate and a great approach um because it you know it's like a totally modern film in so many ways but then there's also this way in which it kind of really does fit in that 19 early 1930s like in between phase before horror becomes a very like easily mass-produced genre in u.s cinema and when it's still sort of like on the cusp between romance and 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 other genres i mean horror in the 30s and 40s is really interesting because there's lots of accounts of the ways that for example horror overlaps with film noir 
um, and uh, the way that horror overlaps with uh, you know other kinds of like crime or murder fiction, uh, and, and at the time and stylistically in terms of plots and things, uh, and I think it's really interesting. I think that horror has always been a very sort of like mixed genre, but particularly at that moment, it definitely was. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's like my long way of saying that I <laughs> I really want to defend the particular way that the, the film goes about, you know, telling the story and the fact that it chooses to be kind of a, a, a bleak or macabre romance movie um, in as much as it would be anything that would be very concretely called horror. Uh, but do know if, you know, if you're trying to figure out whether you want to see it or not, that this is not a very, very traditional horror movie in the sense that it would deliver a cyclical pattern of scares. And I think, uh, I think I can introduce here building on the Angela Smith book. Um, you know, one of the things that Angela Smith's book says, which really I've tried to cite in some form in everything that I write about queer horror, one of the things that she argues is that to look at, for example, the queerness in horror requires an underlying eugenic perspective, meaning that for example, um, we often talk about, you know, whether it's the queerness of, to, to piggyback off of the last episode, Freddy Krueger, or whether it's uh, James Whale's Frankenstein monster, um, you know, that we often talk about the kinds of queer subtext of those kind of quote-unquote monstrous characters. Uh, but one of the things that she points out is that the first level of difference that allows us to project onto that body the sense of otherness that we feel, we feel as queer people is a, a eugenically minded, um, you know, judgment of physical difference as an underlying, um, you know, separation of of people. Meaning that someone who is physically disabled is, you know, has a characteristically othered difference. Um, the monster is the monster, is a physically different being than the people around him. And because he's physically different, we then can read into that difference the emotionality of feeling queer or, you know, or feeling different. And and so, um, and so I want to just kind of add to that because I think that's an incredibly important principle and I, I just keep that in my mind always and I'm so thankful for that book. But what I also, you know, kind of want to point out too, and I, I think I can do this really in non-spoilers and I'll develop it in spoilers, but, you know, this is another kind of movie where we have a monster figure or a, you know, a figure that is deemed monstrous or demonic in Carmilla. And of course there is an incredible kind of queer meaning to her. And in this case, it's not even all that subtle i mean it's not even it's not even as though we're kind of projecting that onto her i mean she is she is kind of you know romantically and sexually uh you know connected to laura and there is a physicality to the you know the intensity between them and their you know their uh, attraction is incredibly 
you know, driven by, uh, you know, queer subtext. And it's also, of course, contextualized within this uh, kind of abusive religious household, which deems them uh, in their pursuit of knowledge and, and company and uh, all these other kinds of, you know, uh, uh, physical intimacy that, you know, it kind of deems them other or different for all of those reasons and also deems them, you know, demonic or impure or whatever sort of ridiculous language you want to use, um, you know, <laughs> by way of that difference. So like innately, this is a film that kind of structures itself as uh, an account of difference in an incredibly repressive, restrictive environment. Um, and I think I will talk about that more in the spoiler section, because I want to talk about specific instances of this. But I do think that, you know, by and large, an important part of this film and something worth noting going in is that it is, as much as it's, you know, a horror narrative, it's also a queer coming of age narrative. And the arrival at something demonic or horrific as being, you know, uh, persecuted and being ostracized is kind of parallel with here the uh kind of self-discovery as queer and that being deemed you know demonic or that being deemed you know worthy of being ostracized or persecuted so this is a, a horror narrative a vampire narrative but it's also a very much a queer coming of age narrative and i think uh, those kinds of dramatic strands being parallel are really important and also, I think, really successful in this movie. And lastly, uh, just aesthetically, I would just w would like to add as a little caveat, this is a visually beautiful movie, and I hate saying that without giving examples, but what I will say is I will do, I will go into specific shots that I really love, um, and compositions I really love uh, in the spoiler section um, because it's not worth describing if you haven't seen it and don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but I just want to point that out that this is, you know, cinematography wise, I think this is a really excellent, very visually beautiful, captivating movie. So if that is a particularly attractive element to you, I think that this would be one worth seeing for sure. Um, and, you know, so like, for example, here's, here's just kind of like one really wonderful moment that really sold the movie for me and maybe it will sell the movie for you. But, the, you know, I, I mentioned I, I, I love Jack Clayton's Innocence and there are a couple of visual references um, involving a girl sitting over a lake and then also a shot of Lara with a candlestick walking down a dark hallway. But like, imagine a movie that's, a, you know, a young girl lit by candlelight walking down a dark hallway and it's this incredibly repressed girl who's like sneaking off to go to the library to read books and on her way to go to the library to read books by candlelight she runs into a mysterious beautiful woman and they have a sexy lesbian me cute and that's and and that's the movie like that's where the movie goes like that's that's sort of like the guts of the movie right like Imagine this like macabre gothic hallway scene of the candle sort of peering through the night and this sort of old home uh, and just subtly lit by candlelight. But imagine that sort of scary horror thing being connected to uh, a coming of age thing of wanting access to information and knowledge and books and then triple that or double down on that by saying, imagine it's a sexy lesbian movie. It's all of those things and it's beautiful. Okay, <laughs> end of spoilers. I have to switch to spoilers. So if you'd like to stop listening, please do and come back and hear what I say after. Um, but if you're still around, thank you for being here. And let me tell you what I love about this. 
I think I think I'm gonna start by just carrying on uh, my love of the all of the candlelit cinematography. When I saw Barry Lyndon in college, it was such a revolutionary movie for me to see um, in my universe. And if you don't know Barry Lyndon, it's a totally beautiful uh, Stanley Kubrick movie that was shot using only uh, only candlelight. It's a, it's a period movie, and Stanley Kubrick apparently, you know, as Stanley Kubrick ought might be prone to do, um, it basically insisted that he didn't want to use any form of light that wasn't available in the period. So everything is like meticulously lit by lit by candlelight, and basically every part of the movie especially the interior shots um that are you know not where, where natural light is less available and so a majority of light comes from candles they look like live action oil paintings and this movie has very much that vibe i don't know um behind the scenes if there you know what amount of the light was natural light as opposed to artificial light but i would guess a lot of the shots are lit um, a lot of the shots are lit seemingly with what's available on screen. So a lot of these are beautiful candlelight shots or shot ambiently with a, a fire behind the characters. And or there's a sort of wonderful visual motif of constantly rolling back the curtains to this bright exposed daylight, um, which has a sort of interesting kind of like threatening quality in a vampire narrative, even though this narrative particularly is not invested in the idea of the sun as being scary, but it does sort of, you just sort of evokes that kind of um, feeling from other, you know, from the lore of vampires of this kind of like the harshness of, of, the, of daylight. Uh, but also I feel like it's this sort of persistent visual metaphor. I think lighting, so I'm gonna to get to the aesthetic principles, but like the, the sort of thematic principles, like lighting in the movie feels like a particular visual metaphor that's very important. Um, and, and the pulling back of the curtains every day to this like harsh daylight, uh, you know, it seems to always emphasize the way in which this house is like, there's like, there's like all of this, um, you know, to be very literal, like enlightenment, on the outside and this house is like it's like this feeling of pulling back the curtain is this kind of like the sort of opening of up to the idea of what is beyond the home uh, and it's always this thing that's kind of like prevalent and available but like out of reach you know it's like always like on the other side of the glass it's always this thing that's like it's not where you are it's where you're looking and we see this a lot like in like the idea of enlightenment and light um, you know, which is a very sort of literary device, but works visually beautifully, um, seems to play out a lot. So like if you cut back to that shot I just talked about with Carmilla in the library or the study or whatever, the, the book room, whatever the fuck it is. Um, uh, <laughs> when we see Carmilla like face on for the first time, uh, it's Lars holding the candle in, like in front of her, and the camera is positioned uh, right where Laura would be, her, where her face would be, looking down at the candle. And the arrival of Carmilla into the frame is Carmilla walking into the frame and being like very brightly 
lit by this candlelight. Like she is visually associated with this candlelight, which is this kind of warmth and enlightenment and possibility. It's similar to the way it's sort of framed outside the walls of the home. Uh, and then there's this other really, really beautiful shot. One of my favorite shots um, is, uh, there's this one, um, so early, oh, I guess like in the middle of the movie, there's a scene where Carmilla is eating dinner. I think it's like the first time that she's spent the day with Laura. And oh, I think she's just done that like weird sexy breathing thing. What the fuck is that? I don't even know, but I loved it. Um, but but she's like the first, like the end of the first day that um, she spent with Laura and it's the family, or actually it's just the governess and Laura and Carmilla. Carmilla's in the center of the table, um, which by the way, Carmilla is frequently positioned between Laura and the governess, Miss Fontaine, which is quite an obvious, also obviously visual metaphor. Um, oh, I'm gonna get to another instance where both of these things come together. Okay, but in this instance, I'm gonna try to stay on track. I have so much in my mind. It's just screaming all the time. Okay, but in this instance, so it's dinner, right? And it's interior, and it's mostly seemingly lit by candlelight. It's beautiful. It's sort of a very warm glow, and it's very sort of minimal. It's not, you know, it's a very subtle light. But in the middle of the table is the candlelight. And the way that the candlelight refracts against the camera lens creates this flare. And the flare of the candle, this is so stupid good. Like, I don't know if it's an accident. I have no idea. I don't care. The flare in the image the flare around the candlelight forms a circle and the circle puts lit literally puts carmilla in this halo of light again continuing the motif of her being associated with light or enlightenment and the way the way that the flare falls it is predominantly around carmilla but circles and just captures laura in this circular flare, Miss Fontaine, nowhere to be found. She's <laughs> the flare said, not you. Uh, like the flare is just this, it's literally like they're in this golden bubble together. Are you kidding me? I saw a review that said that the cinematography looked like a TV movie. I'm sorry, what world? This is the, the it's so good. It's so crazy good. Okay, the other instance I said I would mention that I I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to it. I'm gonna open, close that tab, open a new tab. Okay, Laura being between Miss Fontaine and no, um, um, did I mess that up before? I don't remember. Uh, Carmilla being between Laura and Miss Fontaine. Okay, so later, no, earlier. I'm bad with time. I think earlier. There's the first time that Laura and Car Carmilla talk Miss Fontaine into letting them go out together. If you look at that shot, it's really beautiful. But the way it's composed is Laura is in the light of the window, you know, on, on the left side of the frame. Carmilla is kind of the dividing line. The camera is positioned behind Carmilla such that her back is actually the center of the frame, which is a very unusual choice. You don't usually put someone's full body in front of the camera like that. But 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 think about the composition here, right? So Laura's to the left, uh, and she's in the window bathed in light, kind of like fantasizing about going out into the light. Carmilla's in the middle, this kind of dividing line that separates the, you know, the frame. 
And then to the right is Miss Fontaine, fully out of the light of the window, kind of on the other side of the room. And it literally basically makes this construction where like Carmilla is between them and they're sort of between the three of them having this developed tension where Miss Fontaine is obsessive about Lara and Lara is in love with Carmilla and Carmilla might be a vampire. <laughs> and, and and so there's this tension between the three of them. They all want something different. And um and and uh and you know and so the way the tension plays out visually is Lara is like desperate for the light and Miss Fontaine is desperate for the dark and Carmilla is this like frame between them that's being pulled in either way of like you know what's going to happen with her how is this relationship going to be restructured uh, by the arrival of this mysterious figure um, that's also a really really beautiful shot um, and that, give, that has an incredible amount of meaning in terms of the way that things are composed uh, and then the uh, another one that just I love is um the shot aware, okay, so th this is another one of those things where it's like, who spent their whole morning setting this up? Because someone did, and I love them. Uh, but there's one shot that's like, um, okay, so it's an alcove. It's it's when uh, Miss Fontaine discovers the mysterious book of demon stuff, um, which is what I'm going to call it, because I don't know what the fuck it is. But the, when Miss, Miss Fontaine goes to discover the mysterious book of demon stuff, okay, uh, first of all, it's I, whoever spent the whole morning trying to find the right alcove of trees, bless. Uh, so it's this like perfectly shaped circle, right? The trees, the trees form this perfect semicircle, and you know, and the the sort of darkness of the trees are you know the closest to the camera in the foreground, and the, the sort of shattered carriage, right, is in this foreground in the darkness and. Miss Fontaine walks through this perfectly shaped halo of light alcove um, where the light is from behind her. And it's, just, it's that very garish, like morning light light that comes through the window every day. And she's walking from this place of light into this dark alcove of trees, right? So she's walking from the light into the dark where she discovers this demon book of stuff, whatever it is. And as she picks up and flips open the demon book of stuff, she, uh, she, uh, we cut to a shot where she's actually physically obstructed by the, by parts of the carriage where her whole face has like a, a beam in front of it. So she becomes obstructed, right? So she goes from like from the light toward the dark and then becomes obstructed. And then as she looks through the demon book of stuff, she, you know, she like tucks it away and then turns and walks back toward the light. But as she walks away from us toward the light, the camera turns, uh, switches to being out of focus. So she becomes this like blurred abstraction, right? And that visually, you know, walking from the light into the dark and then collecting this evidence and then basically planting the seed of, of her um, paranoia, planting the seed of her obsession with the idea that Carmilla is evil uh, is represented by this visual obstruction where she's, she's literally blocked from the camera by this weird beam and then you know in this moment where she kind of like has this, this sort of like coalescing of very bad thoughts um she turns and walks away and she becomes this like abstract out of focus kind of shadow right and like this moment which really pivotally changes the course of things it plants this idea that this young woman is the devil or whatever she thinks she is, um, is represented visually so perfectly to tell us, like to me, the ultimate, 
visual style. Like when I say something is visually impressive or visually beautiful or stylish, it's like I what I mean is the the, the actual shots, the way that they're composed and can and 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 edited together tells the story as much as the story tells the story. And so that's why um some of the like casual remarks about the cinematography I thought were really weird and off base because I was like, this is so perfect. Um, I have, there's more, I mean, there's more, I mean, I would just, those are like, that's like three or four or five moments where I think that there's, oh, oh there's also, can you do one more? Um, <laughs> uh, the one where, uh, okay, so before Carmilla's even there, uh, Laura believes, so Laura, Laura is supposed to have a friend named Charlotte come visit, but Laura called the devil with her left hand. So Charlotte, so Charlotte got sick and, um, and Ms. Fontaine is like praying over Laura and telling her to pray and making her think she's like evil, um, which is a great feeling. Thank you so much. That's sweet love it. Uh, and, and anyway, so, so this is happening, right? And the way that it's composed is basically like, Miss Fontaine comes into the frame and becomes so all-consuming and so physically imposing in the frame that Lara becomes this tiny little sliver at the bottom left-hand side of the frame. And Miss Fontaine keeps getting sort of like bigger and more prominent in the frame to the point where like all you could see is like the, the little bit of Lara's face in this sliver of light as she's being physically obstructed by the body of Miss Fontaine. It's like this incredible visual expression of domination, right? Again, the con like the content of the scene is this is this um you know domination of Laura by Miss Fontaine. The visual representation of that is the physical domination of the body in the frame. And I and I just I need people to notice that more because I feel like people a lot of the reviews I user reviews for this movie were like, it's boring. I was not interested after for nothing happened. And it's like, no, 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 no. If you look very closely, there's there's this is not, I mean, I have watched many films that I do find dull. I don't I don't disregard the idea that some things are dull to some people, but like, you cannot say that there are not really beautiful intentional choices visually in this movie, such that paying attention is rewarded. I watched it twice because I thought it was worth it. And this, oh, but we're going to get to the ending of the movie because I didn't even understand the ending the first time. And maybe you didn't understand the first time. I, I can't even speak. That's how excited I am. Maybe you... <laughs> no, you don't. You're drunk. Um, <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't know me, that's funny because I, I literally never drink. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm just excited. <laughs> but but, uh, but the ending of the movie, maybe you didn't understand the ending of the movie the first time. Um, and if you didn't, I'd love to tell you what happens because I fully didn't see what happens. And we'll talk about it in a second. My point being, the visual style of this movie is totally resplendent, and I the and the number of choices are, that are communicate so much about what's going on emotionally and what's going on thematically. Um, oh, also by the way, I have to point out that that shot of of Lara being sort of like physically dwarfed in the frame. The thing that it reminded me of immediately was if anyone is as you might be if you're a queer person who loves horror. Um, if anyone was a, a, a sort of child of the 90s who watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, I did. Uh, but if you watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the body, which is like arguably the one of the best episodes of the series, 
there's a death of someone. I don't know who. And um and uh and, uh Buffy is learning about this death and uh and basically there's like a like an EMT who comes to tell her and he's like telling her that this person is dead. And the way that's shot is like the EMT's shoulder is like three fourths of the frame, and like Sarah Michelle Geller's little like sweaty face is uh, uh, like sweaty because she just vomited, not because I'm insulting her her perspiration. Like she's ill because she's so nauseous of what's happening. Uh, but like uh, it's just this little sliver in the corner of the frame, and it's like the, one of the first times. You know, I wasn't a very I wasn't really exposed to experimental cinema as a child. So for me growing up, that was like the most exciting kind of like visual experimental thing I had seen to like, because it doesn't make sense for the character who's the main character not to be in the center of the frame, right? And so this idea of the physically dwarfing her to give her less power, um, that was my first kind of like callback mental thought was like, oh, it's like that beautiful, it's like that thing in Buffy. I learned a lot about filmmaking from watching Buffy the Empire Slayer and listening to the, the DVD commentaries, which were were really excellent. <laughs> I learned a lot about writing and filmmaking and kind of like a lot of principles that I didn't yet know and I learned later. Um, but that's what it reminded me of, for sure, for sure. Okay, um, so one of the main things I want to touch on, I'm going to try, by the way, I'm trying really hard to keep this short because i am known to talk too long so i'm gonna try really hard i'm trying really hard to keep this like about an hour okay so one thing the one other thing i really 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 need to say before we get to the ending is one thing i love about this and this calls back to the idea of um it being in the in the vein of something like the witch for me um because one of the things uh that i love about this movie is that ultimately uh, it is the story of a religiously abusive household, or just an abusive household that's driven by a religious mentality um, that is, you know, attacking, persecuting, and repressing this young girl uh, for being different, for wanting to read, for you know, being attracted to a woman, for all these, you know, for all these, for being left-handed, like, which interestingly, to go back to the Angela Smith combines eugenics the body difference to the sexual difference to the gender difference right all those things are kind of coming together uh but it really presents that story as you know a story where the family is is the villain of the movie like the the sexy vampire is not the villain of the movie like the sexy vampire is a sexy vampire and we like and it and is romantic and and engaging and smart and cares about laura and like gives this young girl all of this space to you know to, to learn and explore and figure shit out that the people in her home don't give her um and so you know part of the appeal of the witch for me was like it's a movie about a witch where you know she's being tempted by the devil but kind of the ending of the movie is that like all the people around her are in my opinion assholes and really they're just like offended that she's she has knowledge and intelligence and, and like uh, authority and can speak for herself and wants to make choices for herself and so the idea of like turning toward the devil becomes like yeah the devil is like if the devil represents something about, you know, to do with knowledge and self-actualization, it's like the, the devil becomes this, like, completely, uh, like, sexy alternative to, to, 
<laughs> to uh, colonial repression, and um, and so it takes. So anyway, so the idea is like that's a, that's a movie where she like sort of like fucks off and, and goes with the devil, and it's not like a tragic ending. It's like a yeah, these people suck. Like fuck off. Let's go like hang out with the devil. Um, and I feel like the movie has uh, a kind of similar idea, which is like this vampire is like cool. We should go with her. Um, you know the vamp the vampire here represents you know, potential, enlightenment, you know, um, like more than what is happening in the home, which is entirely abusive. And so when we get to the point where at the end of the movie, where there is this, you know, the, the two girls run off together and we like, we wholeheartedly want, you know, they're being beaten and physically hurt. So they run off together you know, uh, Carmilla, the so-called monster demon vampire, doesn't actually hurt anybody that we know of. Um, she's just doing a little blood play. And, you know, and, and by Moonlight, who doesn't love that? Uh, so, so you know, she's being beaten and attacked and they go on the run together. And, you know, we have this moment where, uh, you know, in a moment that echoes one of the very first scenes where, you know, Miss Fontaine is combing or brushing uh, Laura's hair, talking about, oh, if you're like a good girl, you'll go up to heaven. You'll, you'll, you'll be a special angel. And she's doing this creepy thing. And then Laura asks Carmilla, do you believe in heaven and hell? And she says, no. And then she says, well, what do you believe in? And Carmilla says, deserts of eternity, which is a reference to the poem that she told her in one of their quiet nighttimes together. Uh, you know, it's... It's what this represents is the complete escape from this like totally repressive mentality and totally abusive uh, culture. And we get to that place where she has all of this independence and all of this freedom and she seems like she has this opportunity for something else to happen in her life. And then the, you know, the governess who's fucking the father, plot twist, um, you know, all sexually repressed people are probably freaky. Um, but, you know, but like the sort of hypocritical act of, of chastising this young girl's burgeoning sexuality while, you know, while having your way. Uh, but like, again, very prototypical uh, sort of themes about sexual repression and hypocrisy. Uh, but regardless, like the governess and the father find them and and murder Carmilla, um, and and I think it is interesting. It's sort of hard to figure out what to make of the. I, I did see, like notice some reviews that talked about that it was a sort of cliche to have a, a lesbian character who gets murdered, and I don't disagree. But I also feel like um, one of the things that makes it really exciting and interesting for me is that ultimately the murder of Carmilla first of all is not filmed with like a very like grotesque eye on her particular suffering how it's actually filmed is the camera is wholly kind of placed on Laura and it's about like the loss for Laura of what Carmilla stands for which is this freedom and escape from the sexually repressed, intellectually repressed, abusive religious household. And so it's really, it's about the kind of the emotional loss to Laura more than it is about the physical violence. Um, not that that makes it great, uh, but also because it is so truly, purely tragic. Um, I think one of the things that's important, movies about homophobia are really difficult because you don't really want to make a movie that is homophobic or like really relishing the homophobia or just outdated in its homophobia. 
Um, but you also don't want to like disregard the existence of homophobia ever again on film, you know. And I think to go back to the last episode, I talked about uh, the Cellular Closet and Susie Bright talking about the Children's Hour, which if, if you haven't heard that, um, go listen to that because I talked about it a lot and I, I really care about that that moment in the Cellular Closet a lot. But, you know, there is a there is a space for kind of queer grief because it exists because we're still we're still suffering a lot. Um, but one thing that makes, you know, this important for me is this is not a movie where there are queer characters who get murdered and we all we know about them is that they are murdered and they're queer and they're tragic. Like, this is a movie that is an indictment of an abusive logic, of an abusive ideology that is, you know, that, that wholly acknowledges the wrongness of all of these things and wholly acknowledges that what's going on in this house is abusive, that presents this queer relationship as being associated with enlightenment and possibility and futurity. And that is what's cut off with the murder of Carmilla. Um, and it is, it is an indictment of the ideology that is homophobic. And it, it is an account of what, you know, what, like the atrocity that happens to these two young girls in such a way that I feel like, you know, it's not a randomized kind of like performative use of queer people as these tragic random figures like oh yeah they're queer so they die they're queer and they are persecuted by specific characters who have a certain religious ideology and therefore one of them died you know the the, the connection of all of the different you know systems that work together in terms of the ableism the sexism and the homophobia uh you know in this environment that, that all of those things are acknowledged and sort of presented as really like the overarching kind of structure of the film i mean the movie is we meet Laura and she's sort of like given this visual metaphor of being a flower who's meant to be picked and meant to sort of uh, be sort of, you know, to be, to be, uh, to be desirable and preyed upon by insects. And then that visual motif turns into rot. And right. So like, like there's a, there's a sense that like what she's designed to do in this home is, is rot and bear fruit and right and reproduce like she's meant as she's meant to, to attract insects and reproduce and 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 incur some amount of personal loss or decay uh you know carmilla very obviously in a sort of thematic moment suggests not to pick the flowers because the flowers are meant to grow in the sense that she's also saying that laura is meant to grow not to rot and bear fruit um and so this to me works personally because it's such an indictment of homophobia. Um, you know, there's another movie that I saw earlier this year called Tremors, which is a movie that's especially dark and grim, uh, and in terms of its account of homophobia leading to conversion therapy. And that was another film where I just thought, like, yes, everything about everything in this movie is so awful and so difficult to watch, uh, but because it's really an indictment of, and a really like acute kind of account of the different sort of aspects of culture that work together to produce homophobia and to induce the state of being open to something like conversion therapy. I feel like there's something specific and intelligent that it's saying, um, so it doesn't feel exploitatious to me. And that's sort of a, a feeling, a sentiment I felt with this movie. Granted, if someone feels that it's exploitatious and they don't want to watch it, like, I get it. Or you didn't like watching it, I get it. And, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't, um, uh, like, I have no particular way of discounting that experience, except to say, like, I understand why that would happen for you. 
but but for me, one of the things I really love is that uh, ultimately the end of the movie is this kind of like prototypical account of like the the you know the, the like the young girl in distress and and she's she's been captured by the monster right if you think about it in these like broad strokes like lara is the innocent young girl who's been captured by the monster the demon the devil and they go out into the the woods and they rescue her from the, this vampire but the thing is in this movie the rescuing is a hideous hideous act right like the the, it takes the idea of rescuing the young damsel from the vampire and it turns it into this awful, atrocious, violent persecution of a character that we care about. And it takes the return of the damsel or the young girl home, uh, the return of Laura back to the home you know, as she's carried at the end by her father, uh, that really long shot of the father carrying her, uh, you know, which lasts on screen for a long time. The idea of returning the young girl, you know, slaying the monster and returning the girl to her home is supposed to feel like, oh, yes, we've like slain the monster and now the day is won and we will bring our, you know, we bring our daughter home. But in this movie, it's like this totally abusive environment created a situation where this girl desperately needed and an outlet and an opportunity and uh and Carmilla the vampire is is the opportunity and she takes she seizes the opportunity and they go out and they get her and they punish her and they involuntarily return her back to the repressive abusive environment so the returning the daughter you know taking you know winning the day and taking the daughter home is not a heroic act it's a totally violent horrific act um, and that's the kind of twist on the ending, this very queer twist, very different twist on the ending that I really love, which is the sort of the traditional narrative um, becomes kind of exposed as something grotesque. Uh, if we're we're identifying, if we're queer people and we're identifying with the queer characters, what happens to them is grotesque. Um, from the mind's eye of the father and the governess, I suppose this is moral. Um, but I think the film avows our experience instead of their experience. And that makes it not just a film about queer sexuality in the sense that there's a romantic and sexual connection between Clara and, you know, Laura <laughs> and Carmilla, um, but also it's a film that views this encounter from the queer eye by saying, what happens here is not a hero's victory. What happens here is, is, you know, is a murder of a queer person at the behest of a completely abusive ideology. Okay, and I just have to talk about the ending. I wanted to end in an hour, and we're, I'm going to come. I'm going to go a little bit over. Um, okay, the last shot. That, so after that long shot of the father carrying her home, which I think I find heartbreaking, um, there is a shot of, and it's it's a it's a echo of the opening shot. The opening shot of the movie is. Laura throwing stones at the lake or river or wherever. And we are, we see her from behind, the camera's behind her, and we see her throw a stone out in front of herself. Uh, and that's the first shot of the movie. Then the last shot of the movie, which I find very ambiguous and wonderful, is a shot from the seemingly the other side of that river 
with Laura positioned quite far away from us, but looking out at the camera as opposed to away from the camera in the opening shot. Uh, but from a, you know, it goes from being like a relative, you know, like, uh, it goes from being, well, I guess it's, is it a full body shot in the opening? It might be like, it might go from being like a long shot to like an extreme long shot. Like it goes from being essentially like the general distance of, a, 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 you know, it, it, it goes from showing her kind of full body to, to being across the river at a reasonably great camera distance such that it becomes this like landscape shot. So I would say probably from like a long shot to an extreme long shot, I guess we would say. And, um, and what we end up with is First of all, an amount of uncertainty as to what we're looking at, or I found, I don't know where you all are at, but I found it incredibly uncertain. Um, I at first didn't know if, because, oh, by the way, she's also, she was, it's Lara wearing a dress that we have seen Carmilla wear. And Lara, you know, points out that it's her dress and that it doesn't look like that when she wears it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's established that it's Lara's dress that Carmilla wears very prominently in the movie. So it's Lara in this dress that Carmilla wore. So at first, I honestly didn't know if it was supposed to be Lara or Carmilla, if it, and I didn't know if, even though Carmilla was murdered, um, I didn't know if it was supposed to be this like atmospheric ending where Carmilla is like a ghost on the grounds, like haunting, you know, haunting the estate, because that's possible in, in this movie, I think. Uh, but then you sort of I looked looked at it more closely, and it's Lara in in this dress that Carmilla wore, and okay, and I think. A couple, a couple of things are going on here that are interesting. One is the fact that it's Laura, but it, she's very mistakable for Carmilla is really interesting because it says something about the the fact of how she's physically changed. The camera distance and position is interesting. So the camera is no longer, you know, uh, you know, just long shot, but extreme long shots, very far away uh, from across this river. So it's she's less clear to us. Uh, but she's not looking away from us, she's looking directly at us. So if you associate some kind of power in looking, which a lot of people do in in, in film studies and film theory, uh, she has this ability to look out and she has a kind of gaze to look at the camera, uh, but she's very, very far away. So it suggests that visually maybe that she's like access or acquired some power, but yet is to us maybe less knowable um, because of that distance. And I thought all of that was very complicated and interesting. Like I was sort of, the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, so she kind of is like visually mistakable for Carmilla, but she's far away, but like, I can't, I can almost not even tell who she is, but but yet she's looking right at me and there's something sort of like different and interesting about that. And the idea that maybe she has this power, but she's sort of like mysterious and she's been made sort of different and like less knowable. And I was doing all of that shit, like all of that ridiculous nonsense that I do. And then I didn't, I fully didn't notice what was happening. I fully I failed. I wasn't looking closely. And and I watched the movie again a second time. And the the last shot of the movie is is so good and so subtle. So what actually happens, and maybe everyone noticed this, and I'm stupid, it wouldn't be the first time. What happens in the shot is Laura in the dress Carmilla wore, standing at this lake or river or whatever. And we are far from her to the point where she looks visually kind of obscured, uh, but she's looking right at us. And Laura takes a stone and she throws it into the water and the water ripples 
And as the ripples pass through Laura's reflection in the water, the reflection transforms into the reflection of Carmilla with long red hair. And Laura is standing on the water and who we see in the reflection is Carmilla. And the ripples of the stone are what transforms the reflection. It's so fucking good. So, okay, so in addition to all those other things I was thinking, which I think still loosely apply, it's this other dimension, which is like the stone is thrown in the river and the ripple effect is such that it has this transformation, right? So the shot is about the transformation of Laura in the aftermath of Carmilla, which is to say that the ripple effect of what's happened here is that Laura has been transformed in some way and the sort of shadow of Carmilla is something that influences her in her life moving forward is how I would interpret that. But regardless, there's a, there's like a, there's, it's just such a subtle shot, but it has so much in it. And I just, I would, once I figured out what happened, I just was so excited. Um, Cause I think it, you know, I was reminded of, uh, okay, so when I was doing my master's, I took a class on neo-noir with Chris Strayer at NYU, which was my favorite class I took, I think, maybe at NYU. And um, it was a great class. And I had to give a presentation on an article called American Friends and Strangers on Trains. I think that's what it was called. And it was an article written about it was basically trying to characterize the difference between Hollywood cinema and new German cinema by way of looking at Strangers on a Train, directed by Hitchcock, uh, very classic, and The American Friend, directed by Wim Wenders, uh, very you know, more, more experimental German cinema. And uh, in that article, there was this account of uh, so the basic difference, you know, stylistically, in addition to the plot being less linear, visually, the Hollywood film is usually much more intentional with the camera as far as delivering information clearly, whereas the, you know, German, German, New German cinema is more kind of like playful and imaginative in the sense of like information is sometimes obscured in the neo style or to create a different kind of like effect. Uh, and... There was a specific reading in this article that I remember like, recounting and giving, showing the clips for um, to the whole class. And it was an account of, in Strangers on a Train, Hitchcock does this thing, uh, so in Strangers on a Train, which if you haven't seen, you should see, uh, especially if you're interested in queer things in classical Hollywood, because there's a lot of very, very queer subtext in the movie. Uh, but basically, you know, there's a character named Bruno who's, who reads very queer. Uh, in the book and the movie. Which, by the way, the reason why the, these movies were chosen was because both were based on novels by Patricia Highsmith. Strangers on a Train was based on the novel of the same name, and The American Friend was based on the novel Ripley's Game. And so Strangers on a Train, uh, there's, a, there's a moment where Bruno, who is a murderer, who's stalking Farley Granger, um, well, a character played by Farley Granger. Farley Granger, of course, being a queer actor himself, um, also appearing in the, the also very queer Hitchcock film Rope. Uh, but Bruno is sort of stalking Farley Granger's character, who's a professional tennis player. And there's this great scene where Bruno is in the tennis audience watching Farley Granger play tennis. And the camera is looking at the audience 
And the effect is that the audience keeps looking left to right, left to right, as the sounds of the tennis ball bouncing signal that, you know, they're following the ball back and forth on the court. Um, and this kind of visually is the, you know, the dynamic of the frame is left to right, left to right. We see the heads turn. But Bruno, who doesn't care about tennis, isn't following the ball because he's not there to see tennis. He's there explicitly for Farley Granger. So Bruno is like the only head in the frame that doesn't move. And that very dramatic visual contrast is what tells us he's different. And then the camera, of course, pushes in on him to like, once we've sort of identified him visually as different from the crowd, the camera pushes in on him and then I believe it cuts to like behind his head, looking out at Farley Granger. So that's, you know, arguably a very conventional Hollywood choice where the idea is to convey the information to tell the story, right? Bruno is at the tennis match. Bruno is not watching tennis. Bruno is watching Farley Granger. That's what we learned from that those that combination of shots, right? Uh, and then he juxtaposes the author juxtaposes that with uh, in the American Friend. Um, oh gosh, I, Dennis Hopper, I believe, is the lead, and the the protagonist gets a phone call from someone who's saying who's calling from a building, you know, across the way, and the person on the phone is saying. Do you see me? I'm waving at you. And then the camera cuts to a shot of this big landscape of buildings. And there's like cranes and lots of, you know, there's lots of different structures. And we hear on the phone, do you see me? I'm waving at you. And, you know, unlike the Hitchcock film where the camera like pushes in and then cuts to really emphasize what's happening in the frame, the Wim Wenders film doesn't cut, like it doesn't, it doesn't you know, show us the landscape and then cut to a close-up of the person in the window. It just is an extreme long shot of, uh, of, of the, in the entire cityscape. Like there, there, you know, there's no help to the audience to find this person in the window. And the author of the article was basically trying to contrast this kind of like specificity of information versus the kinds of like, you know, more ambiguous presentation of visual information in the new German cinema film. Uh, but one thing that Chris Strayer pointed out, which I, I quite agree with, is uh, if you look at the Wim Wenders film, and if you, if you, you know, maybe you don't see it the first time, and maybe you don't see it the second time, but if you really look at it, you really look at it, it's not, it's not a lie, because if you really look at it, and you can catch it, there is, in one of the windows, a movement left to right, back and forth, like the tennis court, of a scarf in the window being waved by this man on the phone. It just doesn't give you the most amount of information. It doesn't take the camera and push the camera in to say, you should look at this here right now. And that's what I was reminded of with the last shot of this movie, because there's a version of this where it starts as like a, it start, you know, it's, it starts from far out, but then we have a cut and we go to a close-up, right? And then maybe she throws the stone and maybe the camera pans down, you know? And, and then, and then, right, and like we see, and maybe like, maybe the camera like pans down, maybe we see her reflection 
and then the camera like pans up to her and we see her throw the stone and then the camera like you know uh, pans back down to the water and there's a different reflection right like maybe there's that much clarity in the visual information of pointing out like notice this change this is what the movie's about this is what i want to leave you with is this idea that carmilla is this like shadow reflection that you know and that the ripple effect of this will be great for laura but it doesn't do that it just makes it makes the choice to be more like the vim vendors which is um which is an interesting choice and a great choice uh, it's just a different choice and so it's 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 just this you know long shot where extreme long shot from far away across this river and you i totally missed it the first time i missed this detail uh, i still registered the complexity of it and i i registered that yeah she kind of looks like uh carmilla in that dress and i still got i think a lot of the the subtext of the shot but there is this little like easter egg that if you're really watching you can see this like beautiful subtle transformation in the water um and it's a beautiful end of the movie. Uh, so if by some chance you miss that ending, uh, go back and, and look at it a second time if you're able. All right, um, that was Carmilla. I hope that you enjoyed that. I will possibly at some point in the future return to review something else for you all. And um, I won't make any promises, but listen, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere and I do like to talk. So the chances are it'll happen. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you made it all the way to the end of this, that's so kind of you. And I can't imagine why you would do that. Uh, if you would like to actually contact me, um, I love to hear from people and I love uh, any recommendations for movies that people would like me to look at. I would I'd like to look at everything. So you can, if you'd like to contact me, you can email me at gayforhorror at gmail.com. And uh, just one more thing, I do have to say this every single time, just because you know it's it's legally required actually, um, which is that uh, I must confess that we do recruit and it is contagious. So uh, you're totally gay now. Bye.